This morning we continue looking at the book of Acts and how the Holy Spirit worked itself out in the lives of the early church and the people of the early church. And we just read about how uh, our first encounter with Stephen, how he became a deacon, um, and uh, we're going to skip most of his speech because it is takes up most of chapter 6 and 7, and we're going to start at the very end uh, of his speech uh, in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 60. And in that, those verses, we read this. Now, when they, the religious leaders, heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll get to him in a few chapters. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Stephen, Stephen was ready for the moment when it came. As a first official martyr of the church, the very first believer to die on behalf of his faith in Jesus, Stephen's death has rightly been elevated not just as as holy but as heroic. The passion and the mercy displayed before the same council of religious leaders that condemned Jesus, declaring the gospel to an increasingly hostile crowd and then interceding on their behalf required an otherworldly amount of courage and commitment. The disregard he showed for his own life, the boldness with which he spoke, and the motivation behind every word shows a man completely devoted to following his Savior. Even the early church considered his actions legendary, an example to be emulated, a new standard of faith against which they could measure their own devotion to the risen Lord. Throughout history, and especially in in modern times, faithful believers, other people who follow Jesus, have tried to kind of reverse engineer what things prepared Stephen to provide such a powerful witness under such dire conditions. They try to uh, sort of reduce uh, what he did to sort of a self-help book. We see this, you know, you can read books like this, like looking at a successful CEO or a world-class athlete, uh, Christians want to know what kind of habits Stephen practiced made his faith so resilient. What did his day-to-day life look like to place him on such solid grounds in this moment of confrontation? There's nothing really wrong with examining the people we consider saints in that kind of way. We want to know those things Two, if we could distill all of Stephen's tips and tricks into sort of a a spiritual uh, guide, we could just apply what he learned and become more faithful followers of Jesus. Much of discipleship operates in this way. Others show us what to do when we follow in their 
footsteps. But there's a bit of a danger here as well. When we look at people in Scripture as sort of beyond, as we look at them, if we look at them only as heroes, we tend to place a little bit of distance between ourselves and them. We think, well, they had a special uh, connection with the Holy Spirit. We don't have that, so we can't get to that level. But if we look at Stephen's last moments, we discover a much deeper truth about the Christian life. Yes, he was a hero. He did something amazing. He stood up in ways that we can uh, only hope we would if we were in the same situation. But the same divine energy that propelled Stephen, the intentional movement of the Holy Spirit that gave him supernatural resilience and focus operates not just in the heroes of our faith, but regular people like you and me. We need to understand this about Stephen. When we look at his death, at some point in his life, Stephen was a normal person who did not know Jesus at all. Likely a Jewish convert to the early church, Stephen encountered the grace of God and he believed. From that moment on, the Spirit began to work in and eventually through him. Following Jesus, of course, required, and it still does require, deliberate choice and effort. We have to make uh, the, a decision to follow him and to become more like him. But the power operating in Stephen was more of a consequence of what Jesus had promised back in Acts 1. And back then, Jesus said this, to anybody who believes, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, if we look back at his life, the manner of Stephen's death shouldn't have been a surprise. In the death of Stephen, we see the last part. We see the final uh, sort of part of the equation. We see the last part of the same ongoing miracle that is promised to every believer. The Holy Spirit had always been transforming Stephen into the kind of person ready to face and forgive the rage of the religious leaders. We see evidence of the Spirit moving uh, in the life of Stephen in four ways before we even get to the moment of his death. And we, uh, uh, we, we read that earlier uh, in Acts 6, 1 through 15. First, when the office of deacon was created to extend compassion to widows in Acts 6, the apostles first chose Stephen a man full of grace and power who was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen is the first person other than the disciples or the apostles uh, to perform wonders and signs in the early church. Typically acts of mercy like miracles of healing or deliverance from demons. Before Stephen, no other early Christian was doing this except for the disciples and the apostles, the people who already knew Jesus. That Stephen, a new believer who had never met Jesus in person, assumes this role, that he assumes this role, points to the power of the Spirit working in him in a new kind of way. The promise of the Spirit isn't just for the disciples, but for anybody who believes. Second, the combination of grace and power. In the Greek, those words are charis and dynamis. Echoes the character and actions of Jesus. 
Stephen was motivated by a deep compassion for those who did not know Jesus. And he fulfilled his obligations as deacon with a powerful mercy. He wanted to take care of the widows uh, in his charge. He wanted uh, to take care of the people who didn't have anything, who were hungry and thirsty. As his spirit rearranged his heart and aligned his soul with the kingdom, Stephen's actions uh, eventually attracted the attention of the Sanhedrin, the same group of leaders that crucified Jesus. Because when he was doing these acts of mercy, when he was extending grace uh, as a deacon in the early church, people would come up to him and they would argue with him. Uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and this group called freedmen, and they would say, well, you know, explain yourself. What, what are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? That's not how uh, Yahweh says to do it. And he would argue with them, and they would always get frustrated because he would, uh, he would beat them. They would lose. Okay, so he would, he would sort of argue them uh, away, essentially. And they got so frustrated that they eventually brought him before trial. Third, before Stephen begins his defense, Acts 6.15 tells us that all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like what? Like that of an angel. The physical radiance in his appearance reflected the internal condition of his soul. Like Moses, whose face shone after being exposed to God's glory on the mountaintop, or Jesus, whose face and clothes changed at the transfiguration when he was talking with Moses and Elijah, Stephen glows because he had been exposed to Jesus and the Spirit of God was moving inside of him. Without speaking a word, Stephen's countenance revealed that Yahweh's hand was upon him. If I were members of the Sanhedrin, I would have been a little bit concerned at that moment because they knew the scriptures. They knew what happened when someone's face had this radiance upon them. In this moment, God previews actually the outcome of Stephen's trial, that Stephen was on God's side and they were not. Fourth, the words of Stephen are designed not only to condemn, but rescue. Even after he had been arrested on false char uh, charges, Stephen desires not to shut the Pharisees or religious leaders out of God's kingdom, but invite them in. Now, his speech is long. It is, it, he makes some great points. But going back over the history of their faith, he recounts how throughout uh, uh, the generations, the children of God had consistently rejected their Lord, even as he was trying to save them. He said that every generation turned from the commands of Yahweh, uh, the commands that Yahweh had designed to give them life. They killed prophets he had sent to bring them home. The current generation had done the same thing with Jesus, who was the Messiah, Rather than wash his hands of these rebellious people, however, Stephen extends the invitation to become part of God's family again. Even when he's on trial, he is trying to save them. He is trying to help them see that God had come to them, that God wanted to, to restore the relationship that they had broken. Sadly, the trial collapses into madness when Stephen declares he can see Jesus and heaven standing at the right hand of the Father. Enraged beyond reason, the people carry Stephen outside the temple grounds to stone him. 
Deuteronomy 13 uh, defines stoning as a punishment for false prophets. Uh, and they describe false prophets as this. People, uh, prophets who lead the people to worship false gods. Stephen had been doing just the opposite. He had been trying to lead the people home. Full of grace and power. The grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Stephen had invited them back into the relationship their God had sent Jesus to restore, but it didn't matter. As Stephen spoke more about Jesus, he died becoming the first martyr of the church. Stephen's supernatural moments of death, however, should not be seen as something unique in the life of faith. His bold preaching to the Jewish council and his response to the mob is not, isn't just one moment of divine inspiration that flashed upon him at the end of his life. It's not some unattainable expression of faith that only the most holy saints experience. From the moment that he first believed, the Holy Spirit had been directing Stephen's soul toward Jesus, helping him walk in his Savior's footsteps, speak with his words, enter a broken world with his love. There are two things that happened to Stephen in his final moments that show how the Holy Spirit works in every believer in the exact same way. First, Stephen's vision reveals reveals Jesus always has his eyes on his children. Notice that Jesus is not merely sitting at the right hand of the Father, but standing on Stephen's behalf. Jesus is not just our savior. He is an advocate. He is our representative, passionately invested in the lives of his children, a father and friend who cares more deeply for us than we can imagine. Scottish writer John Macduff says this, there is a volume of tender meaning here. 13 times is Christ spoken of in scripture as seated At the right hand of the Father, only here do we see him standing. Why this strange exception? Why has the seated Savior changed his posture so that he is seen standing by his dying servant? Oh, blessed testimony to the tenderness of our Savior's heart. He heard every taunt that was hurled at his servant, and he could not remain still. The same gentle, tender shepherd that he ever was rises to shield and comfort his child. What blessed miracle he does the same with us. Church, Jesus stands for you. The death of Stephen reveals how deeply our God is invested in all our lives. No matter what we are going through, our God cares more about our life and our growth as his children than we can ever imagine. This past week, uh, you might have seen this in the news, a synchronized swimmer fainted in the middle of her routine and began to sink under the water. Did y'all see this? Raise your hand. Okay. So she started to sink. This is not a good thing. All right. When you faint in the middle of the pool, very deep pool, uh, you know, it's not good. Not a great thing. Her coach intently watching from the side of the pool, immediately recognized that something was wrong. And she jumped into the water and pulled her student to safety, seeking to rescue her even before the lifeguards recognized that something was wrong. 
Our God watches us with the same intensity and focus when we go through the ups and downs, the trials and triumphs, when we experience tragedies and joys in our life. He doesn't just know when we struggle, but he helps us in every way that he can. He provides us the resources we need, not just to survive, but prevail, even flourish in a broken world that seems to break us even more every day. Our God is that invested in all of us. The second way we see the Spirit moving at his death is this. Stephen extends grace to his attackers, echoing the mercy of Jesus himself. In his last moments on this earth, Stephen asks Jesus to forgive the people actively murdering him. The love on display here should make us tremble. Stephen's compassion is evidence of the Spirit's ongoing work of transformation within him. The unexpected mercy he displays towards his enemies is an extension of what the Spirit had been doing internally, remaking his heart and his soul to be more like Jesus. Now, this it's even more drastic when you consider the history of the Jewish people, because throughout the Old Testament, the people... Uh, of God often pronounced God's judgment against their enemies when they experienced terrible injustice. The prophets consistently declare that those who hurt the children of God will experience even greater pain themselves. Basically, you're hurting me, but God is going to hurt you because he is a God of justice. Jeremiah fifty twenty five says, uh, the Lord has opened his armory and brought out the weapons of his wrath. For the Lord God of hosts has a work to do in the land of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the people who were invading Israel. But N.T. Wright notes that the early Christians' response to persecution and suffering is remarkably different. Even though the earliest Christians were all first century Jews to whom that kind of response would have been normal and expected, none of them, going to their death, say anything like that. Stephen has just laid a ferocious charge against the Jewish leaders in his speech, but when it comes to his own death, he shouts out a prayer at the top of his voice as rocks are flying at him, as his body is being smashed and crushed, asking God not to hold this sin against them. That is every bit as remarkable as the vision of the open heaven and the Son of Man standing as counsel for the defense. If we knew nothing about Christianity except the fact that its martyrs, the people who were being killed, called down blessing and forgiveness rather than cursing and judgment on their torturers and executioners, we would have a central insight into the whole business of faith. It appears early believers really had learned something from Jesus who made loving one's enemies a central part of his teaching. Remember, Stephen's final actions reflect his initial call to become a deacon. 
He was ordained to extend compassion to all people, to share with every person he encountered the love and grace he'd experienced already in Jesus. Stephen wanted everyone to know, even the ones killing him, that the Lord desired to welcome them home, that he was a God of grace and forgiveness, that he was a God of love. We are called to do the same, and we are empowered to do the same as well. The compassion that we exhibit toward others in times of crisis, the love we extend in moments of conflict with other people, the mercy we show to those who have hurt us, how we extend peace in a world full of outrage, reveals how the Spirit also works in us. The death of Stephen shows us how all believers, including you and me, are empowered to supernaturally respond to the brokenness of this world. Sometimes in this life, we probably still feel like responding with anger to things happening around us. Some days it does feel easier to lash out when someone hurts us or when things don't go our way. Our natural response to the harsh realities of this world, the things that we experience, the things that we see on the news, isn't typically grace or love. We usually don't want to bless the people that hurt or dismiss us. That's not our natural response. But the miracle we see at Stephen's death is that we too can respond with the supernatural grace of the Spirit. It isn't just that he's able to respond with such supernatural grace, but this grace had been supernaturally operating in him the moment he met Jesus. Stephen is not some distant example we can never reach. He's not a standard that is reserved only for the best and the brightest. When the Holy Spirit moves in us, we can do the same. It is the death of Stephen provides us a picture of what we can and will become when the Spirit works in us. Church, the kingdom of God comes through normal people like you and me. People whose hearts are ready to face the worst the world has to offer because they know with Jesus the best is yet to come. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.